We'll start with the most basic of the basics. Mike, who, who are you and what do you do at The Post? <laughs> I'm the climate coach. I just arrived. And what I'm doing at The Post is trying to understand, I think, how individuals can act on climate change. This is Michael Corrin, and as climate coach, he has all kinds of advice about how to minimize our carbon footprint in our everyday lives. You know, there's a lot of, I think, sort of very symbolic actions that are out there, but I'm trying to dig into the data and understand, you know, what's really meaningful, what's really impactful, and going beyond just but how it affects everyone around us as well. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Chris Velasco. It's Wednesday, May 3rd. Today, Mike answers your questions about going vegan and recycling and air travel. Plus, I ask him how he thinks about the future of living in a warmer world. So you've been doing this for a little while already. Can you very sort of briefly kind of walk us through some of the things you've discovered and some of the things that you've been able to share with people so far? <laughs> well, you know, I've written about everything, it feels like. My first column was on appliances, and talking with my editors, Juliet actually came up with something that she'd heard years ago that even washing eight dishes by hand was less efficient than putting them in the dishwasher, which we thought was an absurd statistic, but as we dug into it, it's actually very, quite true. So that was the first column. It did quite well. I think a lot of people have been having conversations about pre-washing dishes or not for a long time, and so we were able to answer that pretty definitively. Since then, I've covered everything from engagement bikes, Lentils, which have done really well. Um, people are very fond of lentils, as it turns out. But I think the underlying message is actually more about questioning a lot of the traditions and particularly our consumption that's based more on marketing campaigns than any sort of actual tradition in our culture. Okay, Mike, I'm super glad you're here with us today because we have received questions from Post Reports listeners that we kind of want to dig into with you. And here is the first one. Hi, Post Reports and Climate Coach. My question is, does living a vegan lifestyle make any difference at all? Especially since few people live this way. Thank you. Okay, Mike, being vegan, is it worth it from an environmental perspective? Great question. <laughs> and very loaded. Um, <laughs> let's, let's start with uh, maybe the big picture, which is I think people have a tendency to jump to the extremes. So it's either vegan or bust, or vegetarian or bust. And given, as the questioner said, most people aren't vegan or vegetarian for that matter, I don't think it's that useful to cast this in absolutes. I think the 80 rule applies here like it does in life, which is you get 80% of the results from about 20% of the effort. And that's not to denigrate what vegans are doing. It's just to say that when you run the numbers, you can have an enormous impact with just a small amount of effort. And you can go all the way but just to give you an example, when you look at the amount of greenhouse gases, uh, contribution of, of greenhouse gases from your diet, it's dominated by meat and dairy. Um, about 57%, give or take, comes from meats and 18% from dairy. So, so right there, about 75% of your dietary emissions are just attributed to meat and dairy. And within that, it's not that all meats created equal. Chicken wings are not beef, as it turns out. Beef is seven times more emissions intensive than chicken. So just to, to zoom out, you know, the, the idea that 
it's vegan or, or you're not really making an impact isn't quite true. What's much more accurate is thinking about what are the small changes that I can make that have an outsized impact? What are some of the small steps that people can consider and maybe you yourself have considered that could maybe kind of move the needle in some small ways? That's a, a great question. So there's some mind-blowing numbers that have come out of some studies recently. There's one in the journal Nature Food in 2021 by the University of Michigan. And they basically looked at research by 7,000 researchers around the world. So they kind of condensed all of this, uh, all of these epidemiological studies, and they looked at the global burden of disease. So they said, you know, what is the health burden of individual foods? They looked at about 6,000 foods and said, you know, what impact do those foods have on our health? And when they, when they ran the numbers, they found that just by reducing your daily caloric intake of beef and processed meats, so basically like hamburgers and salami, 10% with a mix of whole grains and fruits, vegetables, nuts, even seafood, it would reduce the carbon footprint of the average American by one third. So you're getting a massive impact for very small change. Since we're talking about food, there's another question I wanted to ask you about. I, I and I think many other people are, are what some would refer to as aspirational recyclers. We sort of see things that we know probably should be processed differently than just trash. We throw them in the recycling bin and, you know, we kind of hope that everything works out, which I understand is maybe not always correct. But when you're, let's say you're looking at what is a typical bugbear for me, like a, a jar of peanut butter, mm-hmm. like I'll put peanut butter on everything. What are, how should we be thinking about the kind of costs and benefits of like washing out that jar to get it clean enough to recycle? Like, yes, the jar is certainly cleaner than it would be, but it's, I'm also using water that I might not have used otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. And I was literally staring at a a peanut butter jar yesterday (laughs) thinking this exact same question. (laughs) And without running the numbers, I can't give you the exact answer, but I will say this. I think recycling recently has gotten a bad rap, and primarily because of plastics, and deservedly so. A lot of plastics aren't recycled or aren't even recyclable. They used to be shipped off to China. China cut off that trade, and then we had to figure out what to do with it here. So I would say that plastics are not a lost cause in terms of recycling, but there's a lot of problems with them. That said, with a lot of other materials, metals, glass, paper, recycling works quite well. So back to your question— you have a jar of peanut butter. Is it glass? Is it plastic? Here's the bottom line. It doesn't need to be spick and span. It can be relatively clean, and it's kind of the scrape principle. So the dishwasher, you only uses three gallons of water to wash an entire load. It's incredibly efficient. So what I do is I just throw them in the dishwasher, and they get clean. And if there's a little spot, I kind of scrape it off, and then I throw it in the recycling bin. Okay, Mike. This is a question that I personally have and, and a lot of other people in sort of my age range have as well. It's, it's about family, and it kind of gets thrown around a lot. As we're kind of considering the future of the planet and our role in kind of sustaining it or ruining it, should people have kids? <laughs> well, I'm going to answer what I did, which is I had a kid. And I thought about that question quite a bit. And... I think this this has a long and somewhat troubled history is the idea of population and environmental impact. And no question that, you know, another person, another American in particular, has a large environmental impact. I do not see a compelling argument that if we just had far less people in this next generation that our problems would be solved. 
we really need to have a, I think, a society that decides to change how we consume energy and how we consume resources, and you know, how do we support human prosperity and thriving uh, in a way that is protective of ourselves and our future generations and our ecosystems, and simply not having one or two children, I don't think automatically solves a problem in the way that many people kind of expect if you just do the addition and subtraction of emissions. And so it's something I want to get into more, and I don't think there's a you know a perfect, clear answer, but I would say I have not seen convincing evidence on its face that just simply not having children is going to solve our, our environmental challenges, whereas a concerted effort by people who are committed to making some big changes in our society, I think, is actually going to have an outsized impact. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the calculation here, too, is that some people who are considering having kids and and sort of going through this deep kind of personal journey for themselves, part of that calculation is, according to prevailing knowledge, as I understand it, living in what is likely to be a warmer world a century from now is going to be in some ways at least, a little scarier and harder, perhaps, and they don't necessarily want to put their kids through that. Yes, I mean, I think that's a legitimate concern. There's no denying that life, in many ways, will be harder in many places. I think rich countries will be buffered from that more than others, but that is a consideration that you have to make when you think about you know, bringing another generation to this world. I don't think it's a deal-breaker, but <laughs> I think it is certainly not something you can ignore. Okay, that leads us to actually another question we got from a listener. Uh, let's, let's hear what they had to say. Hi, I'm Giselle. I'm 19 years old, and I am currently a college student. And my question is, as a college student living in dorms, how can I live sustainably and make a bigger impact other than doing things like turning off the lights or taking shorter showers? Great question, and I get it a lot. You know, I think we often fall into the trap of doing the small things rather than thinking about what the big things are. And I think she referred to two things, so turning off the lights and recycling. And both are good for the environment. And there's plenty of evidence to support that overall they have a good impact. But let's take the lights for, for a moment. Like The way that lights, light technology has evolved is that it used to be 10% of our environmental impact because it was, it was incandescent bulbs. And they're now LEDs that use 10% of their energy that they used to. So basically, it's a rounding error on your energy budget. So does that mean you should waste energy? No, but does it rise to the top of the list? It doesn't. And so I think when someone, like a college student, is thinking about you know what is the, the biggest bang for your buck, it's interesting because they're living in probably one of the lowest consumptive periods of their life. And so I thought about this, and you know there, there are a couple buckets that you need to think about when you think about the impact of your emissions. And it's housing, it's about a third. Transportation, it's about a third. Food, it's about 15%, and then the rest is the stuff you buy, and services, clothing. And so I instead of maybe you know, thinking too much about exactly how much emissions that you're, you're emitting at that point, there are two things. I think one is you actually could focus on creating the habits and practices that will serve you for the rest of your life, because that will actually have a longer impact than trying to nickel and dime you know, the fuel mileage driving with your friends you know, around town. And so are you comfortable biking around, around the campus? Is it easy to try out a plant-forward diet? Are you really happy with the relatively small amount of stuff you have? I mean, if you looked around and you thought about it, think about it in 10 years from now, and that 
might change kind of what your priorities are, which would have a much more outsized impact than, than what you have in that moment. So I think that's a big one. And then the second thing is to be what social scientists call norm entrepreneurs. So think of yourself as like a walking billboard for how the world could be. And humans are really good at copying each other, but they often need permission or social support to do something different. And so riding a bicycle to work doesn't actually have that much impact on its own. You, it's a few gallons, and it's one person. However, thousands of people seeing you ride your bike to work each day is really powerful. And when some people join you, even if just a handful, that starts to build momentum, not just to ride, but to create infrastructure, safe biking infrastructure that gives permission to a lot more people to ride and so on. Um, And there's plenty of examples of this around where by being sort of a, a norm entrepreneur, you're essentially giving permission, saying that this is something that's desirable or cool and, uh, and other people will follow. So it's a harder job, but if you're in college, it's probably one of the most impactful things you can do. After the break, I ask Mike about how renters can lower their carbon footprint and whether I should feel bad about my air travel. We'll be right back. Mike, I live in an apartment that I rent, and there are many, many things that I feel like I don't have control over. Like, I don't know that I could, you know, rip out my appliances and put in new ones that are more energy efficient. What advice do you have for renters like me? So I think there's going to be a renter's guide, a series that I publish in the next couple of months, and I'll get into specific details. You're right. Homeownership gives you much more control over some of the big reasons, big sources of emissions. Renting narrows that down significantly, at least in terms of your housing. I haven't done as much research on this one, but here are two areas that I've seen a lot of renters have an outsized impact. One is getting EV charging into your building. A lot of landlords are starting now to view EV charging not as a cost, but as an amenity. In some cases, a necessity, because they're losing tenants if they don't have one. But it is very difficult to actually, for a lot of them, to figure out, well, how do I do this? So there's a number of companies that are now starting to essentially offer a one-stop solution that will work with a landlord to install and then manage those chargers. And sometimes what it takes is just a tenant or tenants deciding this is what we really want and then working with the landlord to get that done. Now, that type of action isn't overnight, but it can have a huge impact, not just on your life, but on everyone else in the building. So that's that's a big one. Another one, if you're living in New York or you have sort of units, like window units, they're starting to come out with heat pumps that are essentially replacing the old AC units. I can go into the details of how the technology works, but sufficient to say, instead of using sort of old technology that has a lot of refrigerants that that are potent greenhouse gases, this essentially is a highly efficient technology that sits in your window and can replace a big piece of your energy consumption. I'll be writing more about that in the future, but those are two off the top of my head. Okay, Mike, I want to take a moment and ask you about air travel. I flew to Japan with my partner last year, and it was truly a wonderful trip, but sitting in the back of my head for basically the entire time was, I flew from California to Asia, and we'll be flying from Asia back to California in short order. That's, that's not nothing in terms of carbon emissions, especially compared to cars. 
What's your advice for how we should be thinking about air travel? Should we consider stopping flying altogether? <laughs> that is unlikely <laughs> to happen in the near future, nor do I think people want to do that. In fact, when you look at how societies develop and as they become richer, one of the first things they spend money on after they've met their basic needs is mobility. And I don't think we're going to reverse that in any any near future. And so I think the focus can be, at least in the long term, on actually making transportation emissions free, maybe even negative in some cases. And in terms of flying, there's something called sustainable aviation fuel. We are not there yet by any stretch. But in a few airports like LAX, like LAX, you can fly on a little bit of French fry oil. They basically mix that in to the fuel supply so that we're recovering cooking oils from restaurants and hotels and then turning that into kerosene, which is essentially jet fuel. So eventually we'll get to a point where we have very low emission fuels augmented by probably fuel cells, either powered by hydrogen or just batteries uh, that we recharge. And the first flights that are going to go are going to be these short flights. And I think in Europe, they're already starting to mandate electric aviation for short-haul flights. So, <laughs> uh, get back to your question. You know, I think that flying is obviously one of the larger impacts we can have in terms of emissions. I don't know that abolishing flying is really the right solution. In many cases, a better way to think about this is, well, you know, what can I do first? And in many cases, a lot of us are flying potentially for essential reasons or we're seeing family or we, we can't find another way to travel. But a lot of folks are taking flights all the time and in for under questionable circumstances. So you know, you asked about 12% of people took 66% of all flights. And in France, 2% of people took half of all flights. And so we have this massive sort of power curve distribution where we have a very small number of frequent flyers essentially putting on most of the miles. And I think there's an interesting question, which is, you know, how much how many of those miles are essential? And can we find ways to meet people's needs that doesn't always require them to be flying on the road? And so, you know, it's a question I want to explore more, but I guess that's how I think about it initially. You know, Mike, it really kind of feels like many of the questions that we've discussed today and many of the questions I think a lot of people just have generally with respect to the environment are kind of rooted in an underlying fear of uncertainty or almost doom. Like it does kind of feel like if you if you zoom out far enough and look at the future, we might be kind of screwed. So, I mean, help me understand. What can we do to kind of ward off a future that feels that scary because we are kind of facing what feels like an unprecedented change in our lifetimes. You know, I think humans are very bad at predicting the future. <laughs> it's it's uh, we, we're pretty good at figuring out what potential possibilities are, but in term when there's so much uncertainty, it's I think it's a mistake to feel that we're doomed. It, and I don't think the numbers bear it out. When climate modelers look at the potential outcomes, essentially what they're saying is, okay, the worst case scenarios minus some, you know, some unlikely events are off the table or less likely. And the best case scenarios are also looking less likely because we're not moving fast enough. And so we're kind of narrowing the range of possibilities to this muddy middle. And unfortunately, this middle has a lot of bad outcomes. Uh, so I'm not saying it's going to be uh, rainbows. But there is... I think, not a good justification for saying that we're doomed. So with that, I would also then say that in many ways, we have the tools to do what needs to be done. 
And so we're not, at least we're not staring at a situation where we don't understand most of the technology or at least a good portion of the technology. So, you know, my first column, I wrote that human culture and global warming are not linear systems. They're actually driven by exponential curves and social contagions and threshold effects. And so we could very well end up in a situation where we see public sentiment and public action change very quickly. And it could mean that just a small, relatively small percentage of the population uh, is able to move the entire society in that direction. So I guess when I think about it, I think about it in those terms. Mike, thanks for unpacking all this with us today. Hey, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Michael Corrin is the Post's climate coach. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Taylor White. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Maggie Penman. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe to learn more. I'm Chris Velasco. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.